look at pessimists and you look at skeptics and people think that's the same word and it's mm. not. No, I am definitely a skeptic um, because I am willing to question. That's what a skeptic does. Yeah. It doesn't mean I'm willing to dismiss. It means I'm willing to question. A, right. a pessimist just dismisses outright, whereas I'm willing to question. I'm, I'm okay. You know, this is one of my motivations for, for creating this podcast was to have conversations with people I completely disagree with. Sure. I want to be skeptical about even my own opinion about this thing, yeah. right? So, you yeah. know, talking about uh, climate change with somebody who is a scientist who doesn't believe in climate change, mm. yeah, okay, I want to hear that. I want to yeah. hear that. I am totally skeptical, but I have to, my skepticism is what keeps me open, not pushes me into a small corner. And I think yeah. that this, this rigorous, egoic, I know the answer yeah. is the downfall of all of us. Oh, I agree. I, you know, on one level, like, you know, my wife has pointed this out to me and she goes, you know, sometimes uh, militant atheism is equally as bad as, you know, the opposite. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and to be a skeptic means that I may um, question you know, religious doctrine, but I'm only questioning it. I'm not saying it's not true, no. you know, like, and, and that's a, a skepticism, which I think is healthy. And the same way that I question atheism, you know, like, how do you know, you know, for sure, I, I can't tell you with 100% certainty, there's not a, uh, an 18 wheeler, you know, circling the moons of Jupiter right now. I mean, with complete certainty, right? So, no. so being a skeptic requires you to, to question everything equally. So I totally applaud that. I yeah. totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. So so let, let's let's move on a little bit to um, to a little bit more more about when you look at um, the world because we're we're talking mm. a bit more in a global sense here. From your point of view, I mean, you 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 have a multicultural background. You're American, Japanese, you're mm -hmm. fluent in Jap uh, Japanese. You went to school in Japan. You spent time in London, in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, mm -hmm. you and I, have, that's one of the things we talked about is that we both had a lot of different cultural experiences. Yeah. Just from your own sense of being not, you know, not saying that <laughs> this is a rule, but, how do you think we, be, we, as in collectively, we can become better human beings? Hmm. Yeah, you know, again, it's, it's kind of going back to what I, I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, the ability for people to travel is incredibly important and to meet people that they have had uh, stereotypical ideas about. I mean, I think that most people would probably be shocked at how much they have in common with an Iranian family if they sat down and had dinner with them, yeah. you know, or an Iraqi family or a Chinese family. And I think that it becomes very much um, a tendency for tribalism to become demonization of other people. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I've, I've pointed this out, you know, a lot, again, in the business environment, that on one level, I think it's really good to be tribal. Like you should be proud to be a designer. You should be proud to be a creative person. You should be proud to be working at the company you're working at if you, if you are. Um, where it gets bad is when it becomes exclusionary towards the other. And, you know, like, and within companies, you tend to be like, well, our department is better than the accounting department is better than the tech department or yeah. whatever the case is. Right? You, you become siloed and, you, and now you're in a competitive 
mindset. You become like a bunch of Scottish clans that are looking at each other with suspicion, yep. you know, and only when the English attack do you suddenly, you know, unify. But yep. otherwise, you're still probably doing civil war. And I find that the same thing happens with humans is that you tend to be, by accident of birth, you say that wherever you are is the best place. You know, like, so I grew up in Texas and, you know, there's this whole idea that Texas is the best place, you know, like, and you're proud to be a Texan, you know, and I am, I like Texas, but you were born there accidentally. I was born here accidentally. I was, you know, born in the United States accidentally. Mm -hmm. um, you and I are both men, not by choice. You know, it, it's circumstances, something happened. I don't know what that is, but we turn out to be the way we are. Mm -hmm. So what you do with what you got born with is what I measure you on. Yes. And I think that if you see people who get a little bit too proud of whatever it is they come from, I heard George Carlin do a, a bit on this the other day because, because I'm Irish, you know, theoretically, my grandparents are Irish, you said, and I, you know, I grew up with an Irish household, but I'm not running around saying Irish pride, even though that's a big thing with St. Patrick's Day, because Carlin was saying, I didn't have any control over that. No. You know, you know, he goes, it just happens. He goes, I like Irish things, you know, and so in the same way that I'm half Japanese and I like Japanese things. I probably would if I was 100% white, like Japanese things, but yeah. it reverberated with me heavily. So I think to make better human beings, there was a thing that happened traditionally, uh, especially in Europe, where you would take a, a year between, you know, finishing high school and going into university of traveling, you know, yeah. like, and, you know, and of course that's the province of people who have money primarily, but, you know, ideologically, if you know governments were able to help subsidize uh young people traveling you know even the peace corps kind of thing that they were to get out and experience people in languages and cultures that are very vastly different than theirs it always changes them and then you realize that we're really just one culture you know one world and, and the other thing you'd like just to be a little bit further out there because you know there's this syndrome that it, you know, astronauts talk about that when they go into space and they can see mm -hmm. the the earth and its totality below them, they can never come back to seeing it the way it was before. Now, you know, our grandkids may have that ability to easily go up with, you know, uh, in Virgin Galactica and, you know, encircle <laughs> yeah. the world. And hopefully that's the case, because then I think then literally you get a perspective that we are this very privileged piece of dirt, you know, that is spinning at hundreds of thousands of miles per hour through an infinite space circling a, a flaming, you know, sun, um, that if you are able to give people the macro perspective, I think it helps them become better humans. Yeah. So, One so. of our guests was, uh, was an astronaut that we had on the show mm. show. And he, he had talked about that, that, you know, I, I, and, and we know that, you know, borders are, things that were made by white guys a yeah. long time ago with lines on a map that have yeah. nothing to do with people. Exactly. And, and, and they're arbitrary. Um, and, and you happen to be born somewhere. And my family on my mother's side um, are from what was part of Russia. Mm. But my grandfather, not my grandfather, my great grandfather spoke seven languages not because he was a great scholar, although he was, but because you had to, yeah. because 
one week he was living in Germany and the next week he was living in Poland and the week after he was living in Russia. And and I said, come on. And and no, but it was like, it wasn't literally weeks, but it was within months. Yeah. Like, you know, the borders could change. Yeah. The power, oh no, we're in charge now. So you got, everybody's got to learn Russian at school. No, we're in charge now. You got to, and, and so he spoke all these different languages because he Mm -hmm. had to, Mm-hmm. In order to sort of, and and all is this nonsense, this this tribal nonsense. I I'm with you. I I think mm-hmm. there's things to be proud of that you've chosen. Yeah. Right. So, I, I mean, my my tribe is my my, and it's for me. It's the same with family because we talk about values, and I talk about maxims. Yeah. And values are societally conditioned. Mm-hmm. Maxims are emotionally subjective, driven pieces. So for me. I say to people, what's one of your values? And they say family. And I say, is that a value or a maxim? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They go, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, at a value level, the world says, oh, you know, you should highly value family. Okay, cool. What is family then? And they say, oh, it's your mom, your dad, your sisters, your brothers, your aunts, your uncles, your grandparents, whatever it is. I go, that's interesting. Because yeah. for me, family is a maxim. It's not a value at all, mm-hmm. but it's a maxim. And they go, what do you mean? Family for me is a super high because it's got nothing to do with family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are, there are nothing to do with blood. There are members of my family who sure. I do have a blood relationship with, but most of my family had no blood relation whatsoever. Some of them have actually, I've got family members who are my spiritual family who I've not met yet. Mm-hmm. Meaning uh, there's a bunch of us all flying into Vancouver in the end of January, 2020, we're going to hang out together. These are my family members uh, mm. who are not related to by blood. And of the eight of us, uh, five of them I've never met in, in physical presence, but we've been wow. friends with through this wonderful thing called the internet for, mm. a, for three to five years. And we meet on a weekly basis. Wow. Wow. And if somebody had said to me 10 years ago, you will have brothers and sisters and family members who you've never hugged. For me, it was a hugger. I would have mm-hmm. said that's not possible. Yeah. And now these are people I love with all my heart who I would jump on a plane for, who are jumping on a plane to come and so we can be together. Well, it's interesting, you know, to, to your point, I, I think there's something that cannot be replaced, uh, which is physical presence, you know, to be in, in yes. an actual physical space with somebody. Yes. Um, you know, because, you, you know, I, I have meetings with um, my Seattle team through Zoom, but it makes it's hard to explain what it is, but when you're actually physically present with someone and you're actually having lunch with them, there's a connection that happens that cannot happen any other way. So that when you come back and you're actually using digital media again, even if there's a mistake in a text or an email, there's context. And so people yes. are much more accepting of that. You know, well, I know Dove, he didn't mean that. He means, uh, he means this. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's interesting to kind of like realize that, you know, that no matter how far we get with the technology that, you know, it's nothing beats actually physically being there. Yeah. One of the things that I was going to mention though, uh, regarding, you know, traveling and international um, is that I am an advocate that you should learn at least one other language. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I speak Japanese and, and the reason why also is that when you speak another language, a different aspect of you comes forward uh, in a, a very different me. Um, literally, I think with a different part of my brain, I believe, Mm-hmm. And I think in very in a different different expression, it's still me comes out when I'm in the city of Tokyo and I'm speaking in Japanese at a restaurant 
it, it, it's, it's a my voice changes. Literally, it, it drops about half an octave and, and suddenly, and then suddenly there's a cadence that's very different. And my thinking is very different. And it can happen with Spanish. I mean, it can happen with a Latin based language. It's even close by. And, you know, I'm not saying you have to be great at the language, but uh, if you do that, then you, you actually experience the culture in a very different way, too. And, and it know, helps. I find that really fascinating. I'll tell you why. I, one of my clients, uh, she was born in Quebec, so she speaks French as a first language. Um, but she has been living in English-speaking places since she was 21. Yep. Um, so she speaks English fluently, but she lived in China and she learned to speak Mandarin. Mm. But she speaks three languages. And I am the one who who's trained her to be a speaker and all those kinds of things. And we've built her business around that. But for the first time this year, she's been presenting in French as well. Mm. Speaker said, well, can you, uh, her bureau said, can you speak in French? She says, yeah. And we're walking through her presentations. And I said, do you hear that? And she said, what? I said, that nasally piece is gone. And I was always correcting this nasally thing she would do in English when she was thinking. And it's how I knew she was thinking. The mm. language would move to a slightly nasally tinny sound right because i could hear her thinking yeah when she speaks in french she has way better sense of humor even though i don't understand what she's saying i can yeah. see she's funny i can see the cadences changed i can see the 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 mannerisms have changed and i think you're absolutely right i think there's there's a cadence to a language mm -hmm. that accesses a different way of you thinking uh, uh, that because i know even when I was a kid, one of my fun things to do was to do impersonations, you know, of people. Mm -hmm. and one of the things I would do impersonations of was language. Yeah. yeah. So I speak fluent fake Chinese. <laughs> right? And when I was a kid, I used to yeah. speak fake Japanese. Mm -hmm. right? And I used to say, if you think about Japanese, it's very easy to, to impersonate. Mm -hmm. Just imagine you're constipated. Yeah. <laughs> right? That is... I'm not saying it's show. true. I'm not saying it's true. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. if you think about yeah, the yeah. cadence, right? So it's like, there's a lot of that. Right? So there's a lot of that in it. Yeah. Right? And, uh, and uh, I say, you know, you think about about uh, Chinese, it's a very singy, songy. Oh, yeah. you know, and I know yeah. this is not politically correct to do these things, but <laughs> no, it's, like, it's not. No, I don't <laughs> care. But, but it's this understanding. Yeah. <clears throat> and again, because we're talking about creativity, because for me, people will say, well, that's very politically incorrect of you, Doug. Screw you. I don't care about yeah. that. What I'm talking about here is creativity because there is a melody yeah. to every language. language. Yeah. And if you think about that in this way, so if there's a melody to every language, does Beethoven make you feel the same way as the Sex Pistols do? Mm -hmm. probably not mm -hmm. your thinking is going to be different listening to sure. iron maiden yeah than it is going to be listening to james taylor yeah right so yeah. those languages shift the mindset so if i'm in that uh, 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 yeah. then there's a thinking to that if yeah. i'm in swedish which is very singy songy mm -hmm. you know there's a different thinking to that in a latin language you know there's that expression there's a bigger movement to it than the yeah, yeah. British, yeah. 
I'm sorry we have a pillar brass right now. I, yeah. uh, oh, I'm arriving, darling. Oh, yeah. oh, stay, stay clear, dear. It's Saturday night. I'm arriving. Oh, yes, I've arrived. Yeah. yeah the uh, um, interesting thing for me is that uh, I learned Japanese when I was like nine. I was late. You know, I learned it in right. Japan. And, and my mother and I only spoke English with each other. And... Um, as an experiment, when I was 21, I'm like, you know, I'm just going to switch to Japanese. We're just going to speak Japanese. And our relationship improved immediately. Is because, your, your mom's Japanese? Yes, my mom, my mother's Japanese and my dad's white American. Right. So what was interesting is I realized, oh my gosh, you know, this whole time she's been in the United States, she's been translating in her head from Japanese into English, et cetera. Wow. So it's always had the accent. You know, and the best way to learn a language is to ditch your native language and just think in that language, right? So what was interesting is that more than the language, she suddenly saw me as a Japanese man or a boy, you know? And then so the context goes, she didn't, I was just like this weird American kid to her uh, up to that point. And then suddenly when I was speaking Japanese, then she was like, something in her brain went click and it was like, oh, now we're in Japanese land and we're in Japan world you know, in terms of, in terms of rules of like engagement and how we, you know, talk to each other. And That's it immediately awesome. improved because then she, she, so it added a formality to our conversation, but then suddenly in a weird, in a weird way that allowed us to actually have a civil discourse that we weren't having beforehand. So I wonder if, and again, I'm making, totally making shit up here, but I wonder if prior to 21, mm-hmm. you were your father's son. And at 21, in her head, you became mm-hmm. her son. Yeah, in, in some ways, I think that's very true. I think suddenly she could relate to me. And, um, you know, I remember being in Tokyo uh, with her and my grandmother at the time. And, and suddenly I was like, oh, this is the Japanese side of the family. You know, because my Japanese grandmother could only speak Japanese. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and then there was a sudden, again, going back to that tribalism in a, in a good way. Yeah. Um, I had been outside the door of that. And then suddenly I was inside the door yeah. because the other thing is, you know, Japanese culture is very homogenous, you know, it's, it's 98% Japanese people live in Japan. Yes. And so at the time that I was growing up being mixed was an anomaly and it actually kind of terrifying. Um, and in fact, when I was growing up in Texas, it was the same thing. And what I learned is that people um, are equally prejudiced, whether you're in you know, the United States or Japan in this case. Um, you know, I got in trouble growing up in Texas for being um, a chink, you know, and they couldn't, oh, yeah, get, of course, right. they, they couldn't even get the, the slur correct. Uh, <laughs> I, I would actually, and, then, and then when I went to Japan, you know, I got the equal, you know, disparagement from that side. And, I, and that was probably when I became completely um, able to shed any kind of prejudice I had against anybody for any reason. Because once you've been in that situation, um, then you realize, you know, like everybody's equal. And, and the big one for me is like my dad came to visit my school and I've been telling him for like nine months, I said, dad, it's tough. I'm going to a Japanese school. I don't speak the language. Um, you know, I'm getting, I, I got into seven fist fights in the first two months. Oh. Part of the reason why I learned judo, right? I learned you know, martial arts. <laughs> And the irony of this, those fights became friendships over time, yeah. you know, interestingly enough, because guys tend to do sure. that. But my dad showed up 
he had to visit my school, like, I don't know, about nine months into being in, you know, school there. And, you know, I was the first foreigner and it's 300 year old history. You can imagine what a target I had on my back and uniform, the whole thing. But my dad that evening reported back to me about his experience of visiting my school and talking to my teachers. And he was indignant. He could not believe that they threw rocks and garbage at him as he was walking into the school and being yelled at. And I was like, "Uh uh-huh, you know, this is what people deal with all, it's what I've been dealing with. But as a heterosexual white male from the all-powerful United States being a Texan, he had never experienced an ounce of what people of color, people, uh, you know, women, LGBTQ experience on a daily basis. And this is what you were saying before about about the fortune of birth. You know, we don't know, we don't understand. You know, I've, you know, I do accents and do all these things. And again, as I said, they're all politically mm-hmm. incorrect and I understand that. Um, but but the, the, people the, the say to You're doing it from a good space. You're not doing it from a mean space. And no, that's, no, but that, that's my point. Is important. But that's yeah. my point is because I think that's the other problem with politically correct. Yeah. There's no, no understanding of context. Like you're talking about exactly. emails and stuff. There's no understanding of context. And, and people say to me, well, you shouldn't do that because you're a white guy. And I go, excuse me, mm-hmm. go self, go... Yeah. play with yourself right <laughs> and the reason for it is this is because i actually do understand prejudice and they go well how could you you're a white guy because here's the thing i was the only jew in a school of 300 kids mm-hmm. right and every day when i went into the room i got this i didn't know what that was and it was the jews killed our lord oh wow right i, I, I know so i was i'm like nine years old and these kids are like punching me and then doing this i'm like I don't know what that is. And they said, the Jews killed our Lord. I'll go, well, first of all, I'm not all Jews. And Mm -hmm. second of all, who's your Lord? And they said, Jesus. And I'm like, well, he was a long time before me. What's that got to do with me? (laughs) So, you know, and I, and I, and I was, uh, you know, I was a rebellious kid. I was an artist. Mm -hmm. You know, I had, I had purple hair. I had, you know, I was, you know, it was before punk. It was, uh, before Bowie, you know, I was doing this with Bowie. Certainly I, I became a, a Bowie guy, but you know, all those things, you know, my brother used to say to me, you know, if you'd have come home and told us you were queer, we would have all went, yeah, okay. <laughs> right. Because, <laughs> yeah. because yeah. I dressed differently and I didn't yeah. care. I, I, on one eye, I wore um, clockwork orange makeup and a oh, bowler yeah, yeah. hat oh, and yeah. had purple hair. Yeah. I didn't care. I was just an artist mm-hmm. and that's all I was. But that also got me a kick in mm-hmm. because there's all kinds of prejudice. Yeah. And, you know, the prejudice against a gay person who can be white prejudice against mm-hmm. a white person. You sure. know, the prejudice against me as a creative who looked gay but was straight, mm-hmm. um, you know, who looks white but is actually of another culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we don't understand. And that's what I was loving about what you saying before about John about how important it is for us to travel. I think we talked about that I had spoken in Iran and I, and I wrote that big piece about it and I actually republished it this week on LinkedIn uh, yeah. because of all the stuff that's been going yeah. on with Iran. Because, you know, I said these 12 myths you have, mm-hmm. like Iranian people are beautiful and, and they're kind and the women are the most educated, <laughs> yeah. they've got master's degrees that are paid for by the government and they love Americans and they love Canadians and they love Brits. The government don't, 
but the yeah, yeah. but the Iranians understand that that's propaganda. Yeah. We don't understand our propaganda. We believe our propaganda is national, and that sure. we no, they're on our side. No, they're not. Yeah. You're being manipulated. Yeah. So for me, that that importance of travel, and for you living in another country, mm -hmm. right, and spending time in that, mm -hmm. you also get to see the prejudice of that side. Like xenophobia oh, yeah. in Japan is yeah. people have no idea. Yeah, in America, it's jingoism. Yeah, uh, you know, and in Japan, it's is is yeah. xenophobia. You know, I think that rebellion that you're talking about, that we're talking about, um, really comes on. I thought about heavily is like it's freedom, and yes. um, and and you know, we we claim, especially in the United States, like you know, it's all about freedom, but then we repress heavily. And it's an immediate, I, I was talking to my daughter about this the other night. I was like, I don't know why humans have such a need to control other human beings. Because it's like Oscar Wilde said, selfishness is not doing what I want to do. Selfishness is making you do what I want to do. You know, like, and there's a, um, and the thing that I guess I've always bucked against is like, you know, it, why should you be telling me how I should dress, walk, talk, live my life? I certainly don't give a, damn about what you do, you know, like no. on your own time. But there's a, um, I think there's a concern that the fabric of reality gets pulled from under people because they think, well, if you're living a different way than me, one of us is wrong. And it's got to be you. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, because, you know, the polarity uh, of the mind. Exactly. And so I think that the more that you, you move away from that. And, um, you know, in a book that influenced me heavily about you know, creativity in general was, you know, Zen mind, beginner's mind by Shunru Suzuki. You know, I read it when I was, very, you know, very young. And the idea that, you know, in, in a beginner's mind, there's many possibilities. In a master's mind, there's like one, yes. you know. And so the more that you um, are able to buck against the system, have, and this is where the idea of rebelling creatively comes from, is like, you know, the moment that you are being, uh, told you can't do something, that's immediately something you should be looking at, you know, and it's like what Elon Musk was talking about with first principles, you know, like people would tell him you can't make a rocket ship based on what, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, and, and they give a litany of things because yeah, that's, you're basing it upon how things have been done traditionally. What if I were to go straight to the source, you know, A, B, and C and, and completely change that system, then we could do it. So, you know, I, I often think about, whenever I want to do something, there is the idea of like, well, it can't be done because it's traditionally it's been done this way. Well, then don't do it that way. Do it a different way. Do what John Baldessari did and burn all your paintings and start from the beginning again. And, you know, the thing about Baldessari, you know, not to be morbid, but, you know, he lived a long time. Wonderful. He was lucky that he lived a long time, but there's no guarantee that we're going to be here till old age. Nope. And all you have literally is this moment right now. You know, and people die young all the time. And, you know, the, the thing that, you know, it's, it's incomparable, incomprehensible to us to think about it because the notion of truly thinking about death is almost the brain can't quite get your head around it. It's, it's non-existence, let's just say completely. Yeah. So then when I think about that, it's not morbid to me. It gives me great, you know, power and strength to realize I got to do it now. If well, not the thing is, as divorce is always an option. Yeah. Death, death is imminent. Yes. Right? Is. Death is imminent. So I could die in five seconds from now. I better make this five seconds count. Exactly. Yeah. And it, and it seems like it's a cliche to think, you know, like th this moment's all you have. But um, 
you know, there's a samurai maxim, you know, going back to maxim, you know, that, you know, the sword is life, you know, for them and death. And that the idea was that they would be very close to death in their thinking so they could go into battle dead. You know, with the idea that the worst case scenario has already been lived through in their head and they're okay with their, their, their sort in life. They've done everything straight and they straighten out everything they needed. And they're centered with what the, in alignment with life so they can go into, into battle and not have regrets, you know, because going back to it, you know, the, the cliche that you always hear about is people on their deathbed saying, it's not the things that I did that I regret. It's the things I didn't do. Absolutely. You know, and I think that the more that we can remind ourselves of that daily, that's where the foundation of creativity happens. You know, because creativity comes out of lack of fear. You know, when you have fear, you immediately constrict the ability to be creative, um, almost down to nothing. Now you're, you're, now you're just in reaction mode. Mm -hmm. Creativity requires contemplation, the ability for the mind to go anywhere it needs to go and did nothing to be forbidden. You know, going back to your point, the biggest problem with the overcorrection in society right now and political correctness is the fact that we have to be so careful about what we say, you know, on, on a level that it becomes now censorship. You know, like now I can't speak freely at all, you know, yeah. which is, and again, you know, because we're in a soundbite culture, the context of any conversation can be excised out of the larger narrative. And then you just yep. have like someone saying something that sounds horrible when in fact they may be condemning that exact thing. 